0: Reading the Globe. Reading the Globe summarizes, synthesizes, and criticizes the week's most important and fascinating stories. Here's your host, Michael Washburn. July 1, 2021. It is a brutal week for mobile trading app, Robinhood, which the Financial Industry Regulatory Authority has ordered to pay roughly $70 million, the biggest penalty of its kind, to redress supervisory failures and a pattern of having misled investors, in some cases causing them to lose fortunes. As reported in an article on CNN's website on Wednesday, FINRA has taken this action as a consequence of system outages that disrupted trading and made customers lose tens of thousands of dollars, as well as the lawsuit brought by the family of a 20-year-old Robinhood trader who committed suicide in 2020. Robinhood's name suggests that the company would like the world to know it as a populist enterprise, if not literally taking from the rich and giving to the poor, then making options and high-speed trading technology that were hitherto the domain of highly specialized financial professionals available to anyone with a phone. But the arena of trading algorithms and futures markets is most definitely not accessible to everyone, and Robinhood has come to look like one more get-rich-quick scheme with a terrible human cost. If anyone in the past held out any tentative belief that its approach could work, the tragedy of 20-year-old Alex Kern's suicide last year was a rude awakening. A clerical and accounting error on the part of Robinhood led the young user to believe that he was in debt to the tune of $730,000, the figure given as a negative balance in his Robinhood trading account. The suicide forever tainted Robin Hood. Nor will it be easy for the app to live down the consequences of its system outages in March 2020. That unfortunate event may remind some people of the scene in David Fincher's movie The Social Network, where Mark Zuckerberg yells at his friend and CFO, Eduardo Saverin, for having pulled funding and caused Facebook servers to crash. For all the tribulations of getting Facebook off the ground, This is the only scene in the movie where Zuckerberg is genuinely, visibly upset. What sets Facebook apart from other platforms? The servers don't crash, ever, Zuckerberg yells. If Zuckerberg gets this upset over a brief interruption that did not cause users to lose anything except perhaps some of their confidence in the young network's technical savvy... And consider what that means for an app whose use cannot suffer any disruption without plunging markets into chaos and costing investors fortunes. For all its problems, Robinhood filed for an IPO in March and is set to go ahead. Investors and the world should beware. <music> Many of us have long been familiar with the tendency of institutions with a highly specific role in ensuring the safety and well-being of American society to buckle to progressive demands, to pursue certain social goals that have nothing to do with their ostensible mission. The military is making ever-stronger pushes for diversity and inclusion under President Biden, though no one has explained how diversity helps win wars with the fewest possible casualties. And some of us remember United Airlines' announcement in April 2021 that it would try to diversify the ranks of its pilots with the goal of training 5,000 new pilots by 2030, half of whom would be women and minorities, even though that metric is irrelevant to passenger safety. It is experience and skill, not diversity, that gets people safely from one point to another. Now, the progressive left has gone one better— National Review's fascinating July 1 issue is devoted to the theme of Occupied Wall Street, Woke Capitalism, and the Radicalization of Corporate America. As David L. Bonson details in an article, The Jack of All Trades Fed, the Federal Reserve is now expected to pursue social goals in addition to an already vastly expanded roster of functions related to monetary policy, policy, interest rates, and the solvency and stability of banks and financial institutions. As Bonson explains, the expansion of the Fed's duties has been underway for some time, from mediating a resolution of the long-term capital management hedge fund fiasco in 1998 to providing excess liquidity to the banking system in anticipation of Y2K problems, To managing interest rates so as to support housing prices and the stock market after the dot-com crash and 9-11 in the early 2000s, the Fed's pre-financial crisis actions showed an expanded interpretation of its job description, to say the least, Benson writes. With the 2008 crisis, the Fed's role expanded still further, as J.P. Morgan bought Bear Stearns, and the capital markets came to require all manner of products and credit facilities to operate smoothly. In the aftermath of the crisis, the Fed spent $200 billion in 2009 and 2010 to prop up various areas of the market with loans, making extensive use of quantitative easing and zero-interest rate policy. The management of risk assets, Bonson points out, has added to the already significant burden of ensuring price stability and optimum employment. Some might think that all this is a tall enough order But under President Biden, a body once charged with pursuing sound fiscal policy in a politically neutral manner, now is also supposed to address the racial wealth gap and deal with climate change. In the eyes of some progressives, those twin imperatives may already represent the real dual mandate the Fed must pursue at all costs. What is next for the tiny Pacific Island nation of Nauru? As The Guardian, Reuters, Cook Island News, and other sources have reported this week, and as Elizabeth Colbert recently detailed in a lengthy New Yorker piece, Nauru's government is making a strong push to demand a finalization of the regulations concerning deep-sea mining. It has used its clout as a United Nations member to ask the International Seabed Authority to expedite consideration of deep-sea mining laws and protocols, triggering the so-called two-year rule that requires finalization within that time frame. NARU and the deep-sea mining firms to which it grants contracts and concessions stand to reap a potential fortune from the extraction of polymetallic nodules or deposits of precious metals that have accumulated over many years on the ocean floor. To say that Nauru needs the money from mining of polymetallic nodules would be an understatement. For decades, the island relied on exports of the one commodity it had in abundant supply, namely, the vast accumulations of phosphate contained in the waste of migrating birds. The phosphate is an ingredient in fertilizers on which farmers in many countries depend. The exports briefly made Nauru one of the richest nations per capita, but it entered the new millennium with its interior mined out and most of the phosphate depleted. For a time in the early 2000s, as Jack Kitt detailed in an exposé in the New York Times magazine, NARU hosted shadow banks with no physical presence on the island and ended up on the Financial Action Task Force's blacklist as a haven for money launderers. It was not a sustainable venture. Housing refugees who seek admission to Australia in a squalid detention center has only led to human rights violations and more bad publicity. NARU has been desperate for new revenue streams. What is the socially conscious stance with regard to NARU's current efforts? It may seem environmentally responsible to encourage the mining of polymetallic nodules, given their use in the production of batteries for electric vehicles. But the flip side of the coin, as the Cook Island News detailed on June 28, is that deep sea mining hampers the ocean's ability to store carbon, so it may also be highly environmentally destructive. Last week, more than 300 scientists in 44 countries joined a call for a moratorium on deep sea mining, at least until they can carry out further research on the environmental impact. They are not alone. The World Wildlife Fund's demand for a pause drew support from multinationals such as Google, Volvo, and BMW. But, if you stand thwart Nauru's efforts, as these supposedly woke corporations are doing, you are joining efforts that cannot but keep a long-exploited post-colonial island nation and its 8,000 people in a state of utter destitution and growing desperation. How far will Quebec go to preserve its francophone character? Having narrowly voted against secession from Canada in referenda in 1980 and 1995, the people of the province are still not likely to see the issue go away anytime soon. Pressures for an officially French-language province had been building for some time, and things are likely to come to a head this summer thanks to a bill put forward on May 13 by Coalition Avenir Quebec, which dominates the province's National Assembly, having won a majority of seats in the elections of October 2018. The bill is not just one more acute or sentimental acknowledgement of the importance of something or other. Its authors mean business. As reported in The Economist's June 26 issue, the bill is part of an effort to promote French as Quebec's official language. It requires businesses to have a bulk of their signs in French, and requires those with 25 or more employees to put committees in place that will oversee the use of written and spoken French in company affairs. In a province famously welcoming to immigrants and refugees, new arrivals will have six months to learn French, after which any government letters they receive will be in French, rather than the language of their preference. The bill even goes so far as to seek to revise Canada's constitution by adding language referring to Quebec as a nation. If people find the bill extreme or even shocking in its blunt enforcement of Quebec's francophone character, they should reflect on Quebec's status as a small province within a heterogeneous country whose federal government has long pursued policies that deluge provinces with new arrivals, who have little knowledge of or interest in the idiosyncratic customs, literature, culture, and language of a given province the country has been taking in more than 300,000 immigrants per year. No wonder Avenir Quebec does not trust bureaucrats in Ottawa to help ensure that Quebec does not continue to slide into a new non-identity as one more faceless place, rife with McDonald's and parking lots and iPhones blaring the same synthetic pop heard anywhere. The Economist characterizes Avenir Quebec as a conservative party, And that adjective does apply in the sense that the party wants to conserve the province's heritage and culture. Avenir-Québec may be at odds with certain tenets of progressive ideology, but this is not really a right-wing or left-wing issue. It was Gore Vidal in The Nation who once said that settlement of the American continent had turned its wilderness into a cement desert bright with golden arches. There are limits to the number of people any society can take in. We are probably closer to the beginning than the end of a retooled and re energized Quebec nationalism. Written and read by Michael Washburn for Audio Hopper. Audio Hopper.